Well, we're going to continue our series today. If you're here with us uh, for the first time, we are going through a series on the Gospel of Mark, and we are looking at the life of Jesus. And in this Gospel, we see Jesus as a servant king. We've titled this series, Jesus the Servant King, because that's what he came to do. In Mark chapter 10, he said he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see throughout this gospel, we see Jesus displaying his power and his authority as the king, as the Messiah. And he didn't use it to lord over people and put people down. He leveraged his power and his authority to help people, to heal people, to free people, to do good to people. And today we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 11, starting in Mark 11, and we're going to go into chapter 12, and we're going to look at Jesus's authority being rejected by the religious leaders of his day. While, while his authority was clearly displayed throughout his public ministry as far as who he was as the son of God, as the Messiah, as the king. There were many who, who though they had so much evidence right before them, hardened their hearts and choose to reject the divine authority that was right before their eyes. And so I would like for us to look at this morning some of the causes for that rejection of divine authority and some of the consequences of the rejection of that divine authority. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. And actually, let me pray and we'll, we'll delve in. Father, as we open the scriptures, as we read, as we reflect, as we examine ourselves, would you graciously lead us to a posture of humble submission to your reign in our lives? Would you convince us that you are good and that you are great and you're worth our absolute allegiance, our absolute surrender? And by your spirit, would you break down any resistance Within us that would push back like the negative examples we're going to look at here in scripture. Would you break down any resistance, make us soft, make us tender, make us responsive, obedient children who conform to your will with joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people for all who had held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so we're going to stop here before we go into chapter 12 and look at the parable of the tenants. But we're going to stop here. And here's here's our big idea. Um, the big idea is simply this, that rejecting the authority of Jesus in your life is rooted in sin and carries devastating consequences. Re, re, rejecting the authority of Jesus in your life is rooted in sin and carries devastating consequences. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus display his authority and power in various different ways. In Mark chapter 1, we see that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So they're like, here's somebody different. 
This teaching has authority in it that's coming from this guy. And they were all amazed, uh, Mark one twenty seven. they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. All right, so Jesus cast demons out of a, of a person who was bound up, demonically oppressed. He sets this guy free and they're, they're in awe and amazed and astonished at the authority and the power that Jesus is exercising. Here's one that I really like in chapter two that we looked at several months ago. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. Here's a clear display of the power and the authority of Jesus. And which, which is easier to say to, to this guy who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. God forgives you or I forgive you. Or get up and walk. And Jesus to authenticate the authority that he has as the divine son of God and son of man. Who came to bring redemption. Who came to bring the kingdom of God on earth. To break in and to destroy the kingdom of darkness. He tells this man who's paralyzed to get up. Which points to the reality that he does indeed have authority to forgive sins. It points to the reality that he indeed is divine, not merely man. In John chapter 8, Jesus prayed this to the Father. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. So here we see in this passage in Mark chapter 11, we see the religious leaders questioning the authority of Jesus. Okay? The conflict is intensifying. The sparks are flying. The, their, their little kingdom, their little religious kingdom that they have established is now coming into conflict with the kingdom of God and with the king of kings himself. And they're a little bit upset about what Jesus did previously in Mark chapter 11. He went into the temple where there were, uh, there were money changers. There was business going on. And, and, and he started flipping over the tables and cleansing the temple because of the corruption that was in the temple. And they did not like it. Their little kingdom was being messed with. And they were calling Jesus out in essence saying, who do you think you are coming on in here and, and doing what you've done? And these were the religious authorities. And, and, and they're, they're trying to, to use their authority to confront Jesus like, like they're, like they have more authority than Jesus. And so they're questioning him. Saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the, the authority to, to do them? One theologian, James Edwards, says that as on the earlier question of Sabbath observance, the counter question implies that Jesus stands not under the Sanhedrin, but over it. So Jesus asked them a question. He asked them about John the Baptist. Uh, his counter question demonstrates the authority about which he is questions. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they give a non-answer. They, they play, they, they, they say, we don't know. Jesus put them in check. They tried to put Jesus in check. They tried to corner him, to trap him. They, they, they wanted to, to get him in trouble. They wanted to discredit Jesus. And just like in every other instance, Jesus wisely and skillfully and masterfully responds. In essence, this isn't a checkmate. You haven't checkmate me. Because the one with all authority is standing right before you. And so Jesus asked them this question about John because him and John were tied together and God was doing something in redemptive history. 
through both of them. And John was the, the messenger who prepared the way for the Messiah, who made straight the path for the Lord. Was He was calling people to repentance and he was faithfully doing his ministry in Israel. And, and the people of Israel, the common people regarded him as a prophet. Okay, They respected this man as sent from God. He was a little weird living out in the wilderness. His diet was a little weird. Locusts and wild honey. His clothes were a little weird. He didn't go with the flow of the culture of the day. He lived a a fasted lifestyle rather than an indulgent lifestyle. And he called out those who were selfishly living in indulgence to repent, to love their neighbor, to get right with God. And then Jesus comes on a scene and to, to be baptized by John. And, the, and we looked at this at the very beginning of, of Mark's gospel. And the father heralded from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John testified about Jesus. He testified about the Messiah who would come, the one whose, whose uh, uh, sandals he was unworthy to, to even untie. And John's gospel tells us, the gospel of John tells us, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus countered skillfully with this question, was John's baptism... Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He countered that skillfully knowing that if they affirmed John as being sent from, from God, then they would have to logically, they would have to accept Jesus' authority because John affirmed the authority of Jesus. He called him the Lamb of God who takes away, who would take away the sin of the world. So we'll go on here to the parable. Here's, and, and though Jesus didn't directly answer their question, he answered it in this parable. And then the implications of this parable in chapter 12. Jesus did this with outsiders. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And went into another country, and when season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left and they went away. Indeed, Jesus did skillfully tell this parable against them. He did expose their sinfulness through this. God is as being the, the owner of the, the vineyard, Israel was the vineyard in in Isaiah chapter 5. It speaks of Israel being a vineyard, God's vineyard. And then these these stewards or these tenants were the religious leaders. And the messengers that were sent to Israel were prophets throughout history. God would send messengers to Israel 
to deliver a message, to, to call his people to turn away from idolatry and to turn away from injustice and to turn back to the living God and to turn back to loving their neighbor. And the prophets throughout history have been persecuted, stoned and killed and rejected. And then finally, God sends one greater than all the prophets. He sends his son, Jesus. And he too is killed. And so this parable confronts the sinfulness of, of their motives and of their actions. And so let's look at some of the reasons why they did what they did. And why anybody would reject the authority of the Son of God. Let's look at some of the causes and the reasons behind it. And let's look at the severe consequences behind it. The first one is, is simply unbelief. They didn't believe. They were hardened in their unbelief. As a theologian Donald Hanger says, the real issue in the passage concerns not information about the authority of Jesus, but the unbelief and unreceptivity of the Jewish leadership. The latter knew well enough that Jesus would have claimed divine authority for, for his doings in the temple area. Their question thus reflects not an inquisitive openness, but an already established rejection of Jesus and the attempt to gain evidence that could later be used against him. By the way, Jesus said he predicted his rejection of, by the, 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 the Jewish leaders. He predicted his suffering and his death and his rejection by the Jewish leaders. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has already predicted that this is going to happen. This is in God's plan and will for Jesus to walk through this. Though these actions were sinful and wrong and they will, and, and those who committed them would be held accountable for their actions, so unbelief is one of the reasons why people reject Jesus and his authority in their lives. Spiritual blindness. A lack of being able to see spiritually, to see and believe. Second Corinthians talks about the, the, the God of this world, lowercase g, speaking of Satan, who blinds the minds of the hearts of unbelievers lest they see and believe the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus describes in John chapter 7, the person who has spiritual sight, who's able, who's able to discern teaching and authority that comes from God. He says, if anyone wills to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. And the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So there is spiritual blindness in connection with an unwillingness and an unreceptivity and an unbelief in God and in his son Jesus who was sent into the world. Also we see... In, in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, that envy was an issue of rejecting the authority of Jesus. In Mark 15.10, it says, uh, for he perceived, speaking of Pilate, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. For uh, Matthew says, for he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see, their little kingdom was coming in conflict with the king of kings. And this happens in every one of our lives at some point or another. Okay? I don't want to just look at those religious leaders of the first century who, who, who rejected Jesus and say, man, they're so bad. Because each one of us, in some way or another, have been guilty of doing the same thing, pushing back and rejecting the authority of Jesus. In our lives as well. For various reasons. And so the Christian is one who has come to submit under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Who has bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. Who has confessed Jesus as Lord of their life. And who has accepted his authority in their life. Though we are far from perfect. Perfect. 
and we are in a process and we're being sanctified. But we have confessed and acknowledged and received and embraced the authority of Jesus in our lives as Lord, as Savior. Jesus will cleanse the temple. Jesus will refine those who are his. And that's what he wants to do in each of us. Another reason we see in the Gospel of Mark that these guys rejected Jesus was their, and rejected the commandment of God, the authority of Scripture, particularly here, was their, their exalt, their exaltation of tradition over Scripture. Tradition. It was so wrapped up in tradition in Mark chapter 7. Jesus said this, he said, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said, you have, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he goes on and he explains how they did that, dishonoring their parents by claiming Corbin and, and not taking care of their, their parents as they ought to honor them. And, and he, he, he says, verse 10, um, honor your father and mother. Moses has said, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles his mother must surely die. Thus, you're, you're making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. And so there's a number of, 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 of ways that are, are reasons that we could, we could point out that causes a person to turn their back on Jesus. Another one that we see is, is fear of man. In here, they, they feared the crowd. They feared the people in verse 32. Uh, uh, if we say from, uh, but what shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. They were afraid of, of the rejection of people. They were afraid that the people would reject them and reject their authority. Verse 32, and the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him they feared the people they feared jesus proverbs tells us that the fear of man is a snare the fear of man is a snare be aware of letting the fear of man dominate in your life there's only one that we should fear and that's god rightfully so and so we see they were just straight up rebellious towards authority, which is a part of human nature to rebel against and buck against authority. Those of you who have toddlers or have had toddlers know that that is within human nature to resist and buck and rebel against authority. And we need that, we need that disposition in us changed. We need the grace of God and the Spirit of God to change our hearts from rebellion towards authority. The fear of man, unbelief, spiritual blindness, envy, exalting tradition over Scripture, and lastly, uh, self-preservation. Uh, one theologian says that the essence of the depiction of the opponents of Jesus lies in that they are self-serving. That is, they are occupied with preserving their power, their importance, their wealth, and their lives. They had a nice, comfortable little kingdom that they, that they could manipulate and that they could call the shots and that they can control. And Jesus comes in and he's shaking things up and they don't like it. And each one of us need to, and when he does that in our lives, need to embrace it. Let him flip over the tables. Let him cleanse the temple. Let him do any pruning that needs to take place in our lives and in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. This is so powerful that Jesus, knowing that he would be rejected, still moved towards those who would reject him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
You see, receiving or rejecting Jesus is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. It's a matter of you and I experiencing abundant life here and now or experiencing death, a slow, miserable death and a withering away because he is the source of life. And so the consequences of rejecting Jesus are severe. The Bible describes them as judgment. It's a matter of life and death. Chapter 12, verse 9. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now the son, Jesus, was killed. And we see that's where Mark's going in the narrative of this gospel, just like in all the rest of the gospels. Jesus is moving towards the cross to lay his life down in love as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And he didn't fight back. He didn't punch back. He didn't attack verbally back. He didn't revile in return. In love, he embraced his lot to lay down his life as a sacrifice for you and I. And his love is so much greater and more powerful than hate. But we see here in this, this parable that Jesus gives, he, the, the, the severity of the consequences of rejecting Jesus, of rejecting his authority in your life, and particularly these Jewish leaders. But throughout the years, I've talked to many people who've done the very same thing, who have said no to Jesus reigning over them. And they chose the miserable life as Eugene Peter describes it. Eugene Peter describes it as this. So, so far, the story has been an exposure of the miserable life that results from a denial of God's ownership and our stewardship. It's a life of constant intrigue, violence, Convining. It's a life that constant, that is, is constantly attempting to reverse reality. It's a life rich in promises and empty in fulfillment. It's a life where everything is in the hands and nothing is in the heart. It's a story with amazingly relevant undertones for our day. When our standard of living is so high, our ability to possess is so well. developed and our claims to ownership are so conspicuous and yet all the while we're burdened with anxiety guilt emptiness and boredom life apart from christ is a miserable life and eternity apart from christ is a miserable eternity jesus came to deliver us From the pains of living without him here and for all eternity. He came to alleviate suffering, eternal suffering apart from him in a relationship, a saving relationship with him. And that's why the message of the gospel is so urgent. It's so urgent for us to to believe it and get it out and share it with people because people are perishing Eugene Peterson goes on to describe the warning here in this passage. The warning is this. If you refuse to acknowledge the ownership of God and your position as a steward of life, there will be no meaning or beauty or fullness in anything you do. Even in the marvelous wonders of the material things, material created by God won't give you happiness. You'll descend in a downward spiral of neurotic anxiety and unhappy pleasure-seeking for your constant denial of God's central place won't get rid of Him. Your constant denial of God's central place won't get rid of Him. I, I love that God doesn't just, just merely give us threats of the consequences, but He wins us over with the beauty of His goodness in his grace. Be weary of those, if, if, of those who, that all you hear from them are, are threats and warning. Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that we are to centralize on. 
who Christ is and what he came to do and the salvation that he freely gives to anyone who will turn to him in faith. But nevertheless, there is warning. There are threats. There is divine judgment as the scripture describes it. And Luke's record of this passage Luke adds one little element here that's, that points us to the severity of the judgment. He says, everyone who falls on that stone, the, that is the cornerstone, all right? He switches analogies. He goes from the vineyard to the cornerstone. And these builders who reject the cornerstone, like the most important stone needed for the building, they reject it. They reject it. It's become the chief cornerstone. And this is God's doing, according to uh, quoting uh, uh, Psalm 118. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I don't know about you, but I'm, I don't want to be crushed. And I don't want to experience the severity of judgment that has been taken for me that I don't have to bear because Christ has borne it for me. And we'll get to that in closing. Uh, verse 9, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, Mark 12, 9, uh, speaks of the severity of the judgment. What will the owner of the vineyard do when uh, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others? Okay, that's an indictment of judgment upon the religious leaders specifically. What we see in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark when Jesus was describing this judgment is he wasn't seething with, oh, I'm going to get you. He was weeping. He was weeping over the sorrow of the circumstances, over over how, how well, listen, listen to these words in, in Matthew 22. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings? And yet you were unwilling. See, your house is left desolate. The miserable life. The painful consequences that come from rejecting his authority. His gracious rule in our life. His good rule in our life. He's not, he's not one who exercises his authority to lord over and to put us down. He uses his power and his authority to help, to heal, to restore, to lift up, to, to help us move towards flourishment. Not towards desolation and destruction. And he describes wanting to gather Jerusalem like a mother hen. Notice the tenderness there. Notice the brokenness and the heart of compassion where he's moved. Moved to tears. And this too should be our response for any of our loved ones, any of our neighbors, any of our co-workers who reject the authority of Jesus in their lives. We too, our hearts should break and weep over them. Knowing that there's desolation, knowing that there's destruction, knowing that there are severe consequences for rejecting the Son of God. For He says in verse 39, For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in AD 70, we see that Jerusalem was destroyed. Judgment came. There was a there was a literal destruction of of Jerusalem in, in, in human history. Jesus again in, in Luke chapter nineteen, uh, Luke describes his sorrow over the judgment that was coming because of rejecting him, the greatest messenger ever sent to Israel, and God had sent some really great messengers to Israel throughout history, including John the Baptist right before Jesus. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. 
But now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed it. You were unwilling and you didn't recognize your time of visitation Note the heart of Jesus here. This, this tender, gentle, compassionate heart that breaks for those who reject his salvation. Those who reject his forgiveness. Those who reject his authority in their lives. And know that he hasn't left us without a solution to judgment. That his heart really is that we would experience forgiveness, redemption, flourishment. And relationship with him. John 3 describes one of the reasons why people don't come to the Lord. He says, and after, after the famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? We know that one, right? We should herald that. We should share that freely. That's a great, if you're going to share one verse with somebody or, or put one verse on your car. I used to have a, a car loaded with bumper stickers. I can't remember if I had that one on there, but, but that one verse, if you're going to, if, if you're a football player and you're just going to put one, one verse number on, on your, uh, on your cheek, Tim Tebow, uh, John 316 is a great one to choose to get out to all the world to, 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 Summarize the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever will believe in him will not perish. But have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But he came that the world might have life through him. And in verse 18 he says. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So here's the, here's the root issue. Here's what Jesus is saying. The reason why people won't come to the light is because they love their sin. They love the darkness. But sin will always take us further than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and make us pay more than we want to pay. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. And I'm not going to stop with that, just that part. Because the rest of that verse says, but... The free gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So John, or Jesus is saying here in John's gospel that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light and do not come to, and does not come to the light lest his works be, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so here's the good news, saints. Jesus came and he bore our judgment. He went to death row for you and me. The judgment that you and I deserve because we have sinned against God. And the wages of our sin is death. And we deserve everlasting separation from God for rejecting his authority and his rule in our lives and going our own way. But God doesn't want that for any of us. So he sends Jesus and Jesus lays down his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for your life. To be the, the, pri the redemptive price paid for your life and my life so that we can be forgiven and free. And not live under the tyranny of sin and Satan. Of the kingdom of darkness. And in the works of darkness any longer. And so let's look at a couple points of application here. First, just receive Jesus as Lord of your entire life. 
Receive Jesus as Lord of your entire life. Some people just want to try Jesus as Savior. They just want fire insurance. But you can't have him as Savior, not Lord. He's both. Okay, we confess when in becoming Christians, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10 and 9. And Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen one day. That's going to happen to those who reject the authority of God and rebel and, and run their own lives and run from God's reign in their lives. There's going to be a day of reckoning when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But for you and I, as the, the old uh, song, Come Now is the Time the Worship says, One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. So come, now is the time to worship. Now is the time to bow down. Those of us who have bowed our knee, it is our joy. Jesus is our treasure. He's worth it. And we continue to bow our lives and bow our knees and confess him as Lord. And as we grow as Christians, that confession, I think, should grow. We, we should become stronger and more bold and more confident in that confession. Next, recognize yourself as a steward and God as the owner of your life. One of the problems we, we get into is we, we think that we belong to ourselves when God says, you're not your own. I've bought you. I've redeemed you. You're mine. And there is freedom in that. And there's, there's comfort in that. What is our only hope, kids? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God, both body, soul, and spirit. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, remember this, this whole scene that we're looking at in Mark 11 and, and, and chapter 12? Um, the, 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 what, stir, what, what stirred the conflict was Jesus was flipping over tables in the temple, the Jewish temple. Okay? And now we see, we see that, that the church is described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's holy temple in which the Spirit dwells. For whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I think it's important for us to recognize that we belong to God. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, the point of the stewardship story is this. God wants us to enjoy all that he has given us. But we can't do it unless we enjoy him at the center we can't do it unless we enjoy him at the center. Every joy radiates from that central joy, just as rays of life-giving light radiate from the sun. And so we need God to be the center of our lives. And lastly, I'll close with this. Acknowledge and embrace the truth about your sin rather than self-justifying and denying the truth. Okay, this is what the religious leaders did. They were confronted. They were confronted with the authority of Jesus. And they had to, they had to just straight up deny the reality of his authority. To deny the good that he had done. Deny the impact that he had made. The, the, the authority that he, he came with from God. And his, they answered his question about John's baptism saying, we don't know. Now these guys had opinions on everything, especially religious stuff. But all of a sudden they want to say, we don't know. They were straight up denying reality. They were lying against the truth. They were being 
false to themselves and false to Jesus and false to God. And James tells us in James chapter 3, he puts his finger on the pulse of, of this wickedness within human nature. And you and I, saints, are even prone to this. And that's why James writes to the Christian church. He says this, he says, But if you harbor bitter envy and self-ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Unfortunately, saints, you and I have the capacity to think some really ungodly things, say some really ungodly things, and do some really ungodly things, and then have this self-justifying and denial of what we done, what we did being wrong. Unfortunately, our hearts can, can be very wicked and ungodly and do some terrible things. And so we need to be confronted with the truth of Scripture, with the authority of Jesus that's that's clearly laid out in Scripture. The authority of His words and His truth. And we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it. We need to look in the mirror of God's Word and let it confront us with the reality of our brokenness and know that we don't have to stay that way. Though we are not okay, though we're broken, though we're sinful and flawed, and selfish. And though we may have bitter envy or selfish ambition in our lives. If we find ourselves in that place. If you're here today. Bitter, you're jealous of someone else. You're, you're, you're self-focused. You're in that place. You have a choice. Being confronted this morning. With the reality of your brokenness. Don't boast and be like, man, I'm good, I'm good, and, and go to all the self-righteous things that you've done and, and the things that you can kind of hide behind as like fig leaves like Adam and Eve did. Don't run to those, those faulty fig leaves that aren't going to cover your nakedness and your shame and your guilt. They're not going to cleanse your conscience. A clear conscience is a great, the best pillow to lay down on at night. Run to Jesus. Run to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not surprised by your sinfulness. You're actually a lot more sinful than you realize. And I'm more sinful than I realize. And God knows it. He knows every part of us. And we're actually more loved and accepted than we realize. And God is way more for us than we realize. And so we don't have to wallow in self-condemnation and we don't have to live under divine condemnation, divine judgment now or for eternity because Christ has taken our place. He's died for us. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He went to the grave. He came alive on the third day and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead and he's going to bring his saints with him to glory where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more coronavirus, no more racial injustice, no more police shootings. No more war, no more fear, crippling, debilitating life experience. We're, we, we're promised a day where God's glory lights up the place and righteousness, peace, and joy reigns forevermore. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a part of that kingdom, the everlasting kingdom... Would you make a bold and courageous decision to respond to Jesus' gentle and gracious invitation to you? Would you respond in faith, faith in him, not in yourself, not in me or anyone else, but faith in Jesus and what he's done for you as the son of God, as the servant king, the one who came to serve you. He came for you. He died for you because he wants to rescue you. And he knows your sin. He knows your brokenness, but he loves you unconditionally. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. 
And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And if you think so, you're deceived. You're fooled. Because he is good and gracious and loving. And nothing about what we do changes that. And he's, his arms are open wide to you. If you guys would just bow your heads with me in prayer. If you're here today and you want to surrender your life to Jesus. Perhaps for the first time or or maybe rededicate your life to the Lord. To Jesus as your Lord. Would you just indicate that by raising your hand? With everybody eyes closed and heads bowed. You don't have to worry about anybody looking. If you're ready to follow Jesus, surrender your life to him, just be bold and say, I'm ready. I know I haven't been walking with him. I want to get right. I know he died for me. I believe it. Lord, Win us over with your goodness and your grace. Disarm us. Where we've been fooled that we think we know what's best. Where we've tried to save our lives and preserve our lives. Where we've been set up to, to lose. Help us to choose the low road. Help us to to die to ourselves, to surrender our lives to you so that we might truly live. So that we might truly have freedom. And Lord, give us your heart of compassion for those who have rejected your authority. Rejected your goodness. Despised your goodness. May we see in this next season, may we see more and more people led to repentance by your kindness and your goodness and start with us. It's been said that we will either crown him as Lord of all or we will crucify him as a liar and a lunatic. But he is Lord in here at City Church. We bow to him. We confess Jesus as Lord. We submit our lives to his authority. May God give you grace this week to do that very thing. By his spirit, may he empower you to obey him in the little steps of obedience. The things that he convicts you of and confronts you with. And may you run to the gospel of grace for pardon where you've blown it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you. And may he give you his peace.